And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We're just a few days away from the opening of the Tokyo Olympic Games, the Games of 2020, which, of course, were postponed to 2021 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. In honor of what is widely regarded as the greatest of all athletic spectacles, I'm pleased to present an interview with Jeremy Fuchs about his book called Total Olympics, Every Obscure, Hilarious, Dramatic, and Inspiring Tale Worth Knowing. Jeremy Fuchs, a writer and editor for Sports Illustrated magazine, has done tireless research into the history of the Olympic Games, uncovering all kinds of fascinating information and all kinds of incredible stories, many of them utterly forgotten and some of them completely unknown to the general public. In other words, this is a book that ranges far beyond the great names of the most famous Olympians to give us a very rich and textured history of these games. The book is published by Workman Publishing. I think I need to correct uh, something in that introduction because I, I really sort of gave the mistaken impression that you really won't see uh, Bruce Jenner and uh, Usain Bolt and and. and uh, and Carl Lewis, and so on, in the pages of this book. In fact, quite a few of the most famous athletes are here. But it would somehow do your book a disservice if if we described it as a book that is mostly about that, because the world already has plenty of books about uh, that, <laughs> and your book seeks to be a lot more than that. Can you explain what your mindset was as you went about putting this book together what did you want its scope to be? Sure. You know, I wanted to cover the the entire history of the Olympics um, in a way that took everything that we know and flipped on its head a little bit. And so it's absolutely true. There's a whole section devoted to the legends of the Olympic Games, the Mark Spitzes, the Michael Phelpses, the Usain Bolts of the world. Um, and in those chapters, I definitely tried to find a different angle you know michael phelps would write about his first olympics when he was 15 in 2000 and he didn't win um which you know in hindsight seems so shocking um so trying to find those um sort of unique ways to retell some of these classic stories and then on top of that take the time to dive in which is what the rest of the book um does is take the time to dive into the forgotten stories or the stories that maybe we never knew um the things that you know get lost to time or because you know, they happen in a different country or to, you know, and not uh, as popular sport and take the time to really investigate those because the Olympics is such a, um, a massive event, right? It encompasses so many things, so many sports, so many cultures. And so to really do it justice, um, I felt it was necessary to really attack it from all angles and go from everything we know to everything we don't. And I think when doing that, um, you know, put together a picture of the Olympics as this sort of complicated messy but wonderful endeavor that we that we're lucky to have every few years if you had written a book that was limited to the legends uh some of which i've named some of which i uh, you've named uh that would be a relatively relatively simple book to read i mean you just google mary lou retton and you suddenly have thousands if not millions of of articles and entries and so on uh and and you kind of make your way through them but but by its very nature, by what you have just described, you are talking about a book which is full of all kinds of largely obscure, largely forgotten information. So how does one go about researching a book 
like this, where you are looking for the unknown and the forgotten? Where do you look for that? You know, the, the lucky as you know, as a writer and as a researcher, you know, for me, the Olympics have been so well documented. Um, the challenge is finding it, and so you know, so many great and fantastic old newspaper accounts. Um, you know, the Library of Congress has a wonderful collection of Olympic history, of Olympic stories dating back to 1896, um, you know, the first modern games, you know, diving into old magazines and old reports. Um, that was the fun part of the book for me, you know, to try to figure out, okay, what, we have this vast history, there's so much to cover, how do I go about finding it? And that's sort of what I love to do is taking these huge things and sort of breaking them down to size and finding the tiny sort of small things that, uh, you know, maybe you didn't know about. And so it was a real pleasure to go back in time in a sense and, you know, see how sports were covered in the early 1900s, um, you know, how the culture and politics were covered back then. It was, you know, for me, as fun as it was to write, it was as fun to research. I felt like I learned so much about sort of the history of sports and the history of, of the world through the lens of this one event. We're speaking with Jeremy Fuchs, and we are talking about uh, his book, Total Olympics, which has just been published. Uh, Jeremy Fuchs, before we uh, dig further into your book, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you, and uh, in particular, your own relation uh, to the world of sports uh, and and why you have become a a, a sports writer. Uh, First of all, did all of this begin for you, with your own athletic endeavors as a young person? Uh, I wish. Um, as much <laughs> as I love sports, I, I learned fairly early on that a playing career past middle school was probably not uh, in the cards for me. Um, so as soon as I learned the lesson uh, the hard way, um, I sort of went to the next best thing, um, which was writing about it. And, you know, from as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with sports. Um, you know, we watched it every night in my household growing up, you know, a sport was always on, whatever the season is, um, and that continues to this day. Um, and so, yeah, playing I knew was out of the cards as um, as my athletic ability is next to none, but I wanted a way to stay close to it, and, you know, the next best thing for me was writing about it. And so what I've, what I've tried to do in all the sort of stories I've, I've done, you know, in this book as well is, you know, take a broader view, right? I mean, sports is such a, a large thing, right? It's such this um, nebulous thing that can be handled for in so many different ways. And for me, it's so interesting to use sports as a sort of a lens as which to look through the rest of the world and the rest of the country, um, you know, to see how culture is, to see what moves people, what makes people tick. Um, and, you know, that has been a real joy for me in, in my career is to find those stories and to find out like why somebody's driven and, or why somebody chooses to do this and not that. And, you know, with the Olympics, you're talking about just you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of athletes. So for me, it was just such a rich uh, tapestry to really take that sort of lens and apply it. And, you know, I was lucky enough to learn, um, just learn so much and, and put it together and perform. Mm. I remember reading on your, uh, your website um, that your favorite books growing up were behind-the-scenes stories about mm-hmm. sports. I wonder if anything sort of shines out as a, uh, an exceptionally good example of, of the kind of book that you would have just voraciously 
devoured as, as a young person and the kind of book that might be kind of a precursor of the sort of work that you have done since then? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, there's, there's so many, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, um, you know, Jack McCallum was a mentor. I'm lucky enough to be a mentor of mine, a legendary sports illustrated writer. I mean, wrote a great book in 2007, I think about the Phoenix Suns. He spent a season on the bench, um, you know, breaks of the game, uh, you know, David Halberstam, um, sort of, I mean, both for sports and not sports, he sort of defined the field, you know, a bunch of John Feinstein books, um, you know, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, who we now know is a breaking news report, wrote a great book behind the scenes at St. Anthony's, which is a, um, you know, legendary high school basketball program in New Jersey. Um, those are the types of books that I, like you said, devoured, um, because as great, I love watching the games, right? I mean, I think that's, you know, I wouldn't like, if I didn't like sports, I wouldn't like watching the games, right? But, you know, for me, to learn about the stories, the characters behind those events is just as interesting as what actually happens out on the field or court. Um, and so there's such a rich canon of, of these books um, in all sports. And I think, um, you know, I, I would try to take a little bit of inspiration from all of those and apply it, apply it in, in some way to this. Hmm. One other general question. Uh, this one leads perhaps even more closely to the writing of this book called Total Olympics. Uh, I read in your biography that you got your start at Sports Illustrated uh, magazine as an intern as a fact checker. Can yeah. you just give us a sense about what a fact checker does at a place like Sports Illustrated and 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 how you would go about doing that work? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's sort of a... You know, I think a, a great crash course into um, journalism. You know, as a as a whole, right? Um, every you know every story that that's in the magazine um, gets factual, and what that means is basically every every word, um, every statistic, um, every claim, every everything gets checked. And sometimes it's as simple as looking up the stat, right? You know, say. You know, somebody hits 30 home runs, you want to confirm that that person hit 30 home runs. That's a simple thing. Other times, it's a lot more complicated. It could be, you know, everything from checking legal records to having a conversation with the character in the story and making sure that um, what's that has been documented, documented correctly. Um, you know, maybe it's going through court documents. Maybe it's talking through um, to friends or, or family members of that particular um, athlete or, you know, people who are involved in that moment. And so it's, basically taking the story that's been presented by a writer and sort of reconstructing it and, um, you know, confirming that it's been, that it's accurate. You know, everybody, as great reporters that have sort of walked through that door and, you know, across all journalism, everyone makes mistakes, right? No one's, no one's perfect. And so this is a way, you know, to ensure that when the story gets onto the page, that everything, every word that's written, every claim that's made is accurate um, because that's, at the end of the day, that's what journalism is about. Obviously, we're telling stories and we're, um, you know, trying to captivate people and, and make people think and learn. But it's not a fiction. You know, it's not a fictional endeavor. It's a nonfiction. So um, as soon as you sort of lose that credibility, um, sort of the rest goes out the window. Right. So, yeah, it's um, it's a great learning experience to learn the sort of the basics and of how to report. And it's something that I try to, you know, do in everything I do is, you know, if it's not accurate, it's not it's not worth printing. So, um, and 
you find time and time again that, you know, you know, it always makes a piece better when it's been fact-checked because somebody finds something, you know, maybe a new detail that you didn't find and uh, it adds to it. So it's a, it's a great thing all around and uh, I learned a lot from it. Right. I think that it's actually probably a temptation when somebody is writing a, a story uh, and they want that story to be as interesting and maybe even as amazing as possible to to cling to certain things that might not, in fact, be factually true. I mean, it you know, might be something about some incredible thing that some young athlete did when, uh, you know, the story is that they were five when, well, it turns out mm-hmm. that they were actually nine. <laughs> and it wasn't quite so amazing, but, I mean, there is uh, an all-too-human tendency for us to grab hold of the things that, would seem to be the most amazing. And I suppose part of the work of a fact checker, especially at a place like Sports Illustrated, is uh, trying to do that with just a cool head uh, that is not swayed by such matters. I mean, where you want the story more than anything to be true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you approach it by thinking, you know, the best facts are the ones that are true, right? You know, somebody you know, we see it time and time again where it comes out that somebody was embellishing or, you know, stretching the truth or even flat out lying about something. And to me, you know, the truth is interesting on its own. Um, and so if you just sort of approach it from that angle, you're going to not be disappointed if a fact, um, you know, comes out to maybe not be as true as you thought it might be at the beginning. And it certainly happened, you know, over the course of my career, you think one thing and then, wait, you know, it comes out, all right, it was another thing. And that's fine because that's just what it is. And so, you know, for me approaching it that way, um, it's not a disappointment. It's just more closer to reality. Mm -hmm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Jeremy Fuchs, talking about his book, Total Olympics, every obscure, hilarious, dramatic, and inspiring tale worth knowing. I have to say, uh, at a glance, this does not look like like a huge book. I mean... In terms of its dimensions, it's not a huge book, but it is packed with fascinating information. And I absolutely love what you have done here. Uh, I think it's, 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 it's tremendously interesting. And uh, I learned all kinds of things that uh, even as a, as a fairly fervent student of the Olympic Games over the years, I learned a lot that I absolutely uh, did not know. I'm just curious, what what kind of impact have the Olympics had on you? And what would be, is there a particular Olympics, uh, Olympic games where you feel like that was uh, the moment when you first became really uh, kind of enraptured with, with the Olympics and what they represent? Yeah, I think, you know, I've always watched the Olympics, but for me, I think the most sort of fascinating and the one that really grabbed my attention in a way, more than just sort of being a passive spectator, was the 2008 Games in China. Um, you know, that was the Games where Michael Phelps won eight medals. Um, and so it felt, I don't know, for me it felt different. It felt, you know, as a teenager then, it felt like, you know, I'm watching something unfold. Every event, you know, they sort of rejiggered the schedule so that all of these events were in prime time and live, you know, despite the time difference. And we were watching all these amazing things, right? There were some races that he won, you know, easily. There was that famous relay where the Americans came back and, and won. There was another one where he won by like a tenth of a second or something, you know, maybe even shorter than that. Every event felt like it mattered, right? And it felt bigger each time. And, you know, to actually, you know, for him to not only 
achieve the eight medals and set the record for you know most individual medals in a game in a single games. Um, but having unfold in such a dramatic fashion um, was, you know, I was hooked. Um, and as somebody, I don't watch swimming, you know, the other the other days of the year, right? But when it comes to the Olympics, um, you know, it, it grabs my attention. And that's, you know, for me, I was, I was from then I was just hooked. Um, and so um, I, I get very excited when the Olympics come around. You know, I, it's a, uh, it's always on uh, sometimes to the chagrin of my friends and family, but I'm just, for me, it's like, this is the ultimate sporting event. It happens, you know, every two years and I'm, and I'm not going to miss it. Mm. The introduction to the book tells us something that I think just about anybody listening to this uh, interview will not know anything about. And that is, although most of us think about the modern Olympic games, uh, having uh, sprung up in Athens, Greece in 1896, that in fact there was a precursor to those uh, Olympic Games in Athens uh, that appeared to have been a very direct inspiration, the Wenlock Olympian Games. Uh, tell our listeners about this and tell us how you ever even came across this. Yeah, so, you know, everyone thinks of, everyone knows the ancient Olympic Games, right, from ancient Greece, and those definitely happened. They were definitely um, an inspiration in part for what we know today, right? But there is a more direct line from these games in Much Wenlock, which is a tall, you know, a tiny town a few hours outside of London. Um, and in the 1800s, you know, it there was an event called the Wenlock Olympian Games, which started in 1850. And it was the brainchild of the town doctor, um, a man named William Brooks, um, who was a fascinating character unto himself. You know, he was a doctor. He uh, was a town magistrate for a while. He founded a library. You know, he was a uh, really kind of ahead of his time. And he had connected with Pierre de Coubertin, who is the official founder of the modern games. And uh, Coubertin was a, a French aristocrat. Um, he was incredibly interested in the idea of physical education uh, in the schools and the idea of, you know, a whole mind and body sort of connection that, you know, the mind is only working as well when the body is working well. And so they sort of, you know, linked up through letters. And there's a, a great collection of Library of Congress of the letters between the two. And they're sort of plotting out these games. Um, you know, the Wenlock Olympian games were really something that you would recognize today. You know, there was soccer. Uh, there was cricket. I mean, there were some of the things that were a little bit more 1800s, like wheelbarrow racing um, and a pig chase. Um, but overall, this is sort of what we come to expect. is actually pretty similar. Um, you know, even though Brooks died shortly before uh, the 1896 games, you know, the things that he sort of put in place, medal ceremony, um, the opening ceremony, um, are, are in action. And so for me, this was really emblematic. And the reason I chose to start the book with it is this is a story that certainly I didn't know before starting this book. I think most people don't know, but the Olympics kind of is descended from this tiny event in this tiny town. And the event actually continues on today, which I think is pretty cool. But, um, you know, most things in this, in the Olympic history kind of fall to the wayside because there's just so much. Um, and I think and that's true of the founding as well. And so, you know, that's what I hope to do with the book is sort of say like, you know, what you think you know about the Olympics, you know, you also don't know a lot of things. Um, <laughs> and those things are just as fascinating as well. And so I think when you combine, you know, what you know and what you don't know, you get something that's like, 
you know, really, really fascinating. And to me, you know, I think takes what people already love in the Olympics and takes it to a new level. Mm, right. You write here in the introduction, the Wenlock Games continue on. Today's version is a bit low budget, costing a modest $14,000 to operate. But we remember Wenlock because it is the hidden origin story to a movement that itself has thousands of hidden stories. We watch the Olympics every two years in awe. We learn new names and new faces and celebrate their incredible achievements. And then we move on more or less. Sure, some names stick. Most, though, fall to history. I guess what you're spelling out there is that anything as vast as the Olympic Games uh, cannot possibly be entirely retained, entirely remembered. There are all kinds of stories that will fall away. And I guess part of the point of your book is some of those stories that fall away do not fall away because they aren't interesting or because they're important, but there are just so many stories, and we tend to sort of retain those that are a bit more recent, and some of these, especially from the distant past, might be completely forgotten. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true. You know, we, we're not going to forget Michael Phelps, right, and nor should we, but it doesn't mean that there are other things that aren't interesting. It just means that our brains don't have the capacity to remember everything, and certainly this book is a reflection of that. I couldn't include every single fascinating Olympic story. I mean, I would still be writing. So um, I had to make some choices and and include some things and not include some things. But that, to me, just speaks to the beauty of it, right? Like, there are so many things that we just don't know about. You know, we think about how many countries come to the Olympics every year, right? They're the big ones and the big competitors. And there's the, you know, China and Russia and all these huge countries, right? There's all these tiny countries that winning a medal is like the most amazing thing ever. We're in the U.S. It's just expected. And, you know, investigating some of those cultures and, and some of those things are just as fascinating, even if, you know, when we're watching, we're not necessarily hearing those stories or following them. And so um, the luxury of time definitely helps. And I can write a lot about the 1896 games and, you know, I can write about the 2016 games. And there's things that we know, you know, we're going to find, in, you know, the games coming up in a few months that we're going to remember forever. And then there's going to be things that we're going to forget as soon as it happens or maybe never even knew about in the first place. And so, um that's what I think, you know, the book does is shine a light on some things that we've probably forgotten and, you know, hopefully just reminds us to, you know, pay a little bit more attention um, to some of the things beyond, you know, just the gold medal winners or beyond just the, the, the big countries or big storylines we see on TV. Right, right. I, I don't want to mention it by name, but there is a an Olympics book that's fairly well known in which one of the things they do is, uh, as they meticulously chronicle essentially every event in in every Olympics that they list not just the three medal winners, but they typically list the eight finalists in, you know, for instance, mm-hmm. the typical track and field event or something. And, you know, even 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 a gesture like that is is a step in the right direction in terms of looking just beyond who won the gold or who won the silver, or who won the bronze. I mean, and, and even there, we often forget the silver or the bronze unless it's some story of heartbreak or shocking yeah. disappointment. Uh, and we just sort of forget that in the grand scope of the Olympics, we should look beyond that top level of the podium uh, for compelling stories and compelling athletes. I mean, think about the last place finisher, right? Someone has to finish last. Um 
And that is obviously not a fun place to be. And, and oftentimes it's from a small country and, you know, there's different ways of qualifying where you're just not in the same league as some of the top finishers. But somebody has to finish last. Somebody has to finish second to last. Um, and that's a very interesting place to be in, um, obviously. And it's a fascinating place to be in, right? I, you know, I, I have written a story in, in my career about finishing fourth at the Olympics, right? Just out of the medals. It's a sort of a heartbreaking thing, right? You're oh so close. Um, and there's actually this research that's been done that finishing third is preferable to finishing second because you, when you finish second, you just miss out on gold. Um, whereas bronze, at least you got something. You know, there's all these things about sort of the psychology of being, you know, competing in the Olympics. And obviously winning is the ultimate, right? I mean, that moment when you're on the medal podium and you get the gold and your, your anthem's playing and, you know, think about how amazing that is, right? Most people don't get that. Um, the majority of people will, will never come close. Um, no matter how many Olympics they compete in, if they even qualify for the Olympics at all, not everyone does. And so, um, as cool as it is to learn about the gold medal winners and to see the emotion on their face and, you know, how amazing it must be for them and their families and their loved ones. Um, there's other people in the competition. And I think sometimes it's just as interesting, if not more so to focus on them and to find out a little bit about their mindset and what it's like to be in this amazing event and then not really do so well. The book is laid out in six chapters and, uh, you have mentioned that one chapter called Legends features the Michael Feltzes and Mark Spitzes and uh, Carl Lewis's and, uh, and, 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 and so on. Uh, but there's five other chapters, Forgotten History, Wild and Strange, Firsts, Discontinued Sports, and Forgotten Heroes. And I actually really love that framework. I think it works extremely well. Can you tell us a little bit about... Uh, how you came up with this framework? I mean, did you first come up with these six headings and then figure out how to sort of fill them? Or did you gather all of these stories and then try to figure out uh, what sort of silos to create for them? I mean, uh, in a sense, which came first and how did this book take shape? Yeah, you know, it was definitely starting by finding the stories first um, and sort of collecting them and collecting as many interesting ones as possible. And then, you know, trying to find commonalities and themes. And so, you know, Legends was, you know, pretty straightforward, right? We kind of know who the, the big names are. And so that was that was easy to put together. And then as you just started researching history and finding some more things, you found all these discontinued sports, um, for example. You know, they, they did tug of war for a few years. Um, they did art at the Olympics for a number of years. There was oil painting, uh, literature, uh, poetry, uh, music, there was architecture. It was a sort of odd, <laughs> odd endeavor. So, so, so much so that like it's the only sport or the only event, the Olympics where somebody would win a silver medal, but no gold or bronze, um, or somebody would win a bronze, but no gold or silver. Um, and I've yet to figure out why. Um, and, and there was art for all these years. There was, you know, live pigeon shooting where they shot actual live shot and killed actual live pigeons. Um, that became one chapter, you know, just to focus on the sports that were there often for a, a games or two. And then I, you know, in many cases, my fully fell away. Um, and then, you know, there's all these amazing stories that were the first, whether it was the, you know, first person in their country to win a medal. And oftentimes, um, you know, in a smaller, um, 
you know, in a smaller country, whether it's the first, you know, two court, two sports star like Eddie Egan, who won medals, gold medals in the U.S. and in boxing and in bobsled, you know, winter and summer, and just an incredible athlete, you know, whether it's somebody like John Taylor, the first uh, African-American medalist who won um, in 1908 in London in track and field. And so you sort of start finding these things, um, and it was great to put those together. And then, you know, I, I love writing about wacky things, um, <laughs> you know, the sort of offbeat um, things. And, you know, especially in the early games, although, you know, it continues on, especially in the early games, though, um, it was a mess. Um, and, um, you know, it was fun to write about the first female American gold medalist in 1900 in golf who never knew she won and went and um, was dying. You know, after she died, someone called, you know, a historian called their family and was like, do you know your your mother won? They're like, what are you talking about? She never knew she won the gold medal. And so finding these things became really interesting and the framework sort of disappeared um, as soon as I kind of found the stories. And then from there, it's just a matter of uh, putting it all together. In this first chapter called uh, Forgotten History, uh, I think one of the most uh, fascinating stories is of the 1956 Olympic Games uh, and the fact that uh, there was uh, tremendous drama uh, of the unhappiest kind unfolding in the nation of Hungary, just as the Olympic Games in Melbourne, Australia, were about to uh, unfold. This is a, a really in, in, in incredible story. Uh, just tell our listeners a little bit about what these Hungarian athletes were experiencing uh, as the Olympics were about to begin. Sure. So, you know, a few months before the 1956 Games, which took place in Australia, um, Hungary underwent a revolution. Um, Hungary at the time was under Soviet rule, and there was a sort of a massive uprising, you know, very much student-led, but, you know, across the country against um, Soviet rule. Uh, it was very quickly and very violently um, squashed by the Soviets. And then um, a few weeks later, the Olympics happened. And, you know, there's uh, obviously some trepidation, right, about the, about Hungarians traveling halfway across the world um, to compete in a game, right? And it really comes to a head in water polo. Um, and it's a famous match called the Blood in the Water Match. Um, Hungarians played... Uh, the Soviets in in water polo, and obviously there was tensions couldn't be higher, right? And so there was punching, and there was kicking under the water, and um, you know this was not a friendly match by any stretch of the imagination. And sort of ends with uh, a Russian player, you know, punching a Hung Hungarian Urban Zador in the face, and he emerges from the pool, and blood is streaking down his his face and it's in the water and hence this, you know, match being called the blood in the water match. Um, Hungary, they had a call the match. Hungary was winning at the time. So Hungary won. Uh, Hungary actually won gold medal, which is sort of a, um, a way to, uh, I guess a nice consolation prize, you know, for them. Um, and, uh, you know, but you see this time and time again, where politics comes into the Olympics, right? Where, you know, we all know the story of, you know, Miracle on Ice, which is obviously a massive hockey upset for the U.S., but it was a Cold War victory in some in some senses. And so, um, and you see it time, time again when countries, you know, use the Olympics as sort of this 
tool of political power um, to announce their presence in the world. If you think back to the 2008 games, you know, you can't watch those games without seeing or hearing a broadcaster saying, this is China's, you know, introduction to the world, um, their introduction on the world stage. Um, the Olympics are a political event. They're hosted by political countries. Um, they are used oftentimes to showcase power, and that very often spills over to the field. And, you know, for the Hungarians, it was a huge amount of pride to beat the Soviets, and you see it again, and it's why I think Miracle on Ice resonates, you know, because it's one thing to upset. You know, they had upset a different country. They also like Canada. It might not have the same, um, the same effect. And so we see that time and time again, and it's another layer that helps make the Olympics just so fascinating. Right. And I really love the way you write about this uh, dramatic, uh, this dramatic moment. Um, you write, Hungary won gold, a huge victory for themselves, an even bigger triumph for their country. After the game, Zadar sat with his gold medal and cried, knowing that Hungary was in chaos and that returning home might not be an option. You write Zadar's blood in the water may be the first thing most people will know about him, but if they look beyond the cut, they'll find something else, a group of water polo players who loved their country, who would have done anything to uphold its honor, even as it began to fall. Um, I want you to tell a, another interesting story from this part of the book called Forgotten History. I, uh, I uh, was interested in this because figure skating is probably the Olympic sport that I followed uh, the most closely, but I did not know this fascinating story at all. Your, your story begins, in 2014, Americans Ronald and Vivian Joseph won a bronze medal for pairs figure skating at the 1964 Winter Games in Innsbruck, Austria. <laughs> in case you've blinked and missed it, that's a 50-year wait for a medal. <laughs> Explain to our listeners this very, very curious story. Yeah, this was fascinating. Um, according to their experience at the 1964 Games, according to every other, you know, report out there, they finished fourth. Um, but they actually finished third. And so, <laughs> you know, they, the 1964 Games sort of dominated, um, at least the figure skating, by the West Germans at the time. Um, you know, there was a the pair figure skating. There was the two West Germans who were sort of, um, dominant. Um, they actually lost, I mean, lost by winning silver. Um, and there was a Canadian team that won bronze, but there was some buzz and sort of some rumors that the West Germans had actually signed a contract. If you remember back then, you know, we all know that Michael Phelps makes tons of money in endorsements, but, and obviously is a professional athlete in that sense. In the early days of the Olympics, up until really the 1990s, um, you had to be an amateur. Uh, if you made any money, you know, off your sport, uh, you could be disqualified. And it happened time and time again. Jim Thorpe is probably the most, um, you know, well-known example. But if you accepted money for your sport, uh, you were in trouble. It's actually the reason why art, uh, believe it or not, was stopped, because many of these um, artists were um, professionals, right? Um, so there were some rumors that the West Germans had, you know, been professionals, right, had gotten paid for their sport. Um, and, you know, they were disqualified. So the Canadians moved up to second place and the Josephs moved up to bronze. But it wasn't, 
it wasn't for a long time that they actually knew it. Um, and eventually, it was sort of a long running story. The West Germans got their medals back, um, but they never told uh, the Americans. Um, and now it's like, what do you do? These two siblings, do they win? Do they not win? Um, but eventually they, uh, they got their, their medal and they own the bronze and the Canadians and West Germans share the silver, but they went from third to fourth or fourth to third to fourth to third. <laughs> They're back at third where they rightfully belong. Um, it just took a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a story. Quite a story. Uh, there's all kinds of, of, of wonderful, fascinating stories to be found in, in this in this chapter, uh, another that I did not know at all, which I find really interesting, is the so-called intercalated games. Is that how you pronounce that? The intercalated games. Yeah. Yeah. The 1906 intercalated games, uh, the Olympic Games of 1906, except not quite the Olympics. Uh, and I think part of what makes this a really intriguing story is the reason why these intercalated games. Uh, were were created in the first place. Explain to our listeners uh, what I'm talking about. Yes, the Intercalated Games, 1906, um, the only such games. Um, and Intercalated, I mean, it's like a, the two years of a four-year cycle. So the idea was, you know, Pierre de Coubertin was this very global figure. It's very, like I said, a French aristocrat. Um, he wanted the games in 1900 to be in Paris, he wanted them to be around the world, which is what you see today. The Greeks wanted them in Athens every four years. They were like, we know how to do this. We've been doing this uh, since the beginning. You know, um, We want it in Athens every four years. The compromise was, all right, we'll go around the globe. We'll go to Paris, the U.S., et cetera. But every two years, there'll be this sort of middle thing um, in the middle of the cycle that would be in Athens and would have the same status as the international games that would come and know. So in 1906, they had the Intercalated Games, and they were a smash hit. Um, the Greeks knew what they were doing, <laughs> so it went off without a hitch. You know, the 1900 and 1904 games, not so much. Um, 1900 games in Paris, 1904 uh, in St. Louis, a lot messier. Um, they were more spread out. You know, it wasn't the two weeks that you come in, you know, come to know now. It was over a course of a number of months. Um, but 1906 was great. Uh, it was the first time that uh, the opening ceremony was separated from the games. It was the first time the athletes marched into the stadium with their flags, like you see today, the first time there was a closing ceremony. Um, but they couldn't keep it up. The Greeks were in a war in 1910, uh, which would have been the next one. Um, two years at the time, you know, obviously now we have two years between the winter and summer. Two years in the 1900s was too much time after... 1910 didn't happen. 1914 was World War One. Um, that didn't happen. And then by the time the war ended in 1918, it was sort of all right. We're just gonna forget this. What I think surprising and sort of, in some ways, a little disappointing is that, you know, they're not really considered official games, right? They are like a separate thing that's like off to the side of the Olympics, uh, which I think is a little disappointing because they were so successful and, and um, you know, the forerunner to so many things that we now know. Um, but, you know, the winners got the medals, but they're not officially recognized um, by the Olympic Committee and they're not displayed in the collection of Olympic medals at the Olympic Museum in Switzerland. Um, but again, this is, a, you know, a thing that comes up time and time again, these moments 
whether it's one year or, or, or two years of these different things that we didn't know about, but actually have a huge impact and are, you know, worth exploring. And for me, it was fascinating because, you know, it's sort of a games that counted, but didn't. Um, and we don't really have that, you know, it would be like an exhibition almost, you know, you, you get participation trophies, but they don't actually count, you know, for the official stats. Um, and so, um, there are people who have these medals, but not really the same thing as it maybe would have been, uh, had it been more, um, you know, more official, uh, the U S did for what it's worth did pretty well. They won 24 medals, which was, uh, tied for third place. Interesting. Um, there are a lot of uh, wonderful things to find in uh, the chapter called Wild and Strange. You've already talked about how much you uh, enjoy uh, writing this, this sort of thing. I want to give you a second to talk about one little moment in this section of the book, which is called An Assortment of Awful Athletes. <laughs> and uh, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is a really... Uh, entertaining a moment in the book in which you talk about people like uh, Eddie the Eagle, Michael Edwards, uh, uh, a, a ski jumping competitor that a lot of people have, have heard of, but you go beyond him, about beyond Eddie the Eagle, to talk about uh, some other uh, exceptionally awful athletes in the Olympics. Uh, just say a word about why this is here be, beyond the, just the entertainment value of it. Yeah, so the, you know, it's certainly entertaining, right? You know, Eddie the Eagle. Uh, there was a movie that came out about it a few years ago. He qualified in ski jumping despite the fact that he couldn't really ski jump. Um, you know, there is time and time again, uh, Eric Musambane from Equatorial Guinea, a swimmer, uh, had never swam before. Um, he qualified and then he learned how to swim. Um, you know, uh, recently there was uh, Elizabeth Sweeney, who was an American skier, um, but she ended up uh, representing Hungary, which is her grandparents' country. And competed in this with a new event. This was 2018, the skiing half pipe, despite the fact that you couldn't do any tricks. Um, this sort of happens time and time again. There's sort of ways to sort of game the system and enter. Um, and obviously, they are not what you would consider to be Olympic caliber athletes. But you know, it's funny, and you know, they're you could say maybe they're making a mockery of the sport and maybe taking you know a spot from somebody who is more you know deserving. Um, I don't know. For me, I, I took a little bit different approach and thought how hard it is to just show up at the Olympics and knowing that everyone's sort of watching and maybe making fun of you. Um, I think it speaks to the power of the Olympic dream, of the, the power of dreams in general. Um, you know, somebody has a dream to, to be a top athlete, whether it's, you know, in the NBA or the Olympics. Um, sometimes people don't, Sometimes stubbornness can be a good thing and not realizing that you're not good enough um, to compete in a, you know, respectable fashion, I think is actually admirable. Um, you know, I don't think it's a joke at all. You know, for me, it's, these are people who, who know they're not going to win, right? They know they're not going to contend. Um, they know they're not going to be a factor, right? They're not going to get a medal, but they're going to compete. They're going to represent their country to represent themselves and their family. Um, you know, they may fall, you know, uh, Eric, uh, Musam, you know, Musambi from the Pearl Guinea did not do well, but he actually gained the, you know, support of the crowd, much like Eddie Eagle did. Um, and he's obviously they made a movie out of it. So, um, these are non-traditional Olympians for sure. They're not there because they're contenders, but they're there because they have dedication and because they have heart and, you know, you don't just show up, right. You have to train, you have to put effort into it. And I think anybody who puts effort into it and, 
you know, does what they can to do their best, even if their best is nowhere near other people's best, I think it's still worth celebrating. Mm. I do want to, again, remind people about the the, center, the section called Legends, and just about every great Olympian is there. I mean, all of the superstars. And a, a very uh, inspiring section that ends the book called Forgotten Heroes, uh, in which we look at other champions who are who who should be better remembered than they are uh many of them uh who who have uh, tremendous uh qualities uh and 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 I appreciate all that I find there I want to finish out with uh, an athlete we've already mentioned briefly the legendary Jim Thorpe and uh mm-hmm. he was of course stripped of of the two medals that he won in uh the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm, and then had those medals uh, restored to him 70 years later. And he was stripped of those medals because it was found that he had played some semi-pro baseball. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I've always found it kind of a curious story because, in fact, he did break the rules. I mean, uh, in a sense, the, the, the stripping of his medals was not at least completely an injustice, or at least that's what I've always thought. I mean, I thought it was sad, unfortunate, but not necessarily an injustice. You actually make a pretty persuasive case for it being actually a terrible thing to have done to, to Jim Thorpe and the fact that he shares his his uh, his uh, medals uh, with other athletes uh, is something of a farce. Uh, just say a quick word about this aspect of the story of the great Jim Thorpe. Yeah, you know, Jim Thorpe is obviously, you know, probably one of the best athletes, you know, that we've to hit the scene, right? And so it makes sense that he would sort of dominate the Olympics. You know, he was this multi-sport athlete. Um, and, you know, like you said, semi-pro baseball was his downfall. Um, I think, you know, some, some context is needed, too, in the fact that, you know, had this happened in 2000, he would not have been banned. You know, we know this, that um, people are making money off of the sports, right? You can turn on the TV, now you're going to see an ad for Simone Biles. Uh, you're going to see an ad with Michael Phelps, right? People are making money. Uh, Jim Thorpe came, you know, he was unlucky, I guess, to be born when he was born. And so uh, he was, you know, disqualified. He got the medals back. But, you know, Jim Thorpe is a legendary athlete, right? He was the first Native American to win gold. Um, for the U.S., um, and he just sort of got it stripped from him, and he's still the co-champion, even though he was so dominant. Um, and obviously, again, hindsight helps in this case, but for me, here is maybe one of the best athletes ever, and it just felt that he was sort of given a raw deal. You know, he didn't make much money playing semi-pro baseball. You know. It, the ideal of amateurism was sort of held up in the Olympics for so long and then it just sort of went away. Um, and now it's like not even a thing, right? You see professional athletes all the time. And so, um, you know, I think it's great. He got his medal back. Obviously I understand the awkwardness. You don't want to take it away from somebody who had it for all these years, but um, I think Jim Thorpe, you know, deserves his place as perhaps one of the best athletes ever. And I think it's unfortunate that he sort of got caught up in something that now is just no longer really, uh, a thing in Olympic history. And one of the things you mentioned in your story is that uh, when he was stripped of his gold medals, uh, the athletes then that were to receive gold instead 
Hugo uh, Weislander in the decathlon, uh, uh, Ferdinand B.A. in the pentathlon, refused to receive those gold medals. I mean, even they felt that a terrible injustice had been done. Just one of a number of fascinating stories to be found in this book called Total Olympics, Every Obscure, Hilarious, Traumatic, and Inspiring Tale Worth Knowing, published by Workman Publishing and the author Jeremy Fuchs. Jeremy Fuchs, thank you for being part of the morning show today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.